case, you gotta copy this. Yeah, go ahead. 11 months time. I'll be over in a minute. Time, temperature, and concentration. Read the work order. Safety glasses. You're not done with that yet? Hey, put on some gloves. Can you please just follow the process? Make sure you put your respirator away. The solvent rags go over the side of the trash can. Where's your wet film gauge? Make sure you're putting tags back on the parts. Did you milk check that? Put your tools away. This Chase. Welcome to KazerCast episode 14. I'm Jace Kazer here by myself today. Um, Chloe is off. So the guest today is Bill Townsend, a good friend of mine. Um, learned a lot about pretreatment from him. And uh, everything that we do in terms of pretreatment at Kazer kind of was um, put in place by Bill. I mean, things have changed a little bit since we initially started, but um, all the basics um, were Bill helped with that. So I'm um, looking forward to talking to him. Uh, the main reason why I wanted to talk to him is I've been thinking a lot lately uh, about, and I told Chloe that I feel like, you know, we call ourselves Kaser Blasting and Coatings, and people think of us as like doing painting and powder coating and that um, we're making parts look good. And so they're thinking like the aesthetic side of things. And um, I think that most of our customers think that the majority of our time is spent painting or actually powder coating. And um, that's where the bulk of our work is done. And that's actually not really the case. I mean, obviously we are doing coatings and so we are putting on powder coating or paint um, at the end of the process and making the parts look good. But that's actually a pretty small piece of what we do. Mostly what we do is surface prep, so like blasting or um, or sanding, and then pretreatment. So I brought up to Chloe, I said, I think that we probably should actually call ourselves Kaser Pretreatment and Surface Prep because that's actually where we spend the bulk of our time. Because if we don't have a substrate that's ready to receive a coating, then we really can't do a very good job. So most of our time is spent on prepping the surface, whether that's blasting or sanding by hand or using like a DA sander to get out deep scratches. Um, and then after that surface prep process, then we do pretreatment. And um, Bill's going to talk heavily on pretreatment when, when I bring him in here, but um there's basically two two aspects of pretreatment. One, we're just trying to clean the parts, and um, a lot of people I think can understand that. And I think there's a lot of companies out there that do clean their parts before they paint or powder coat. Um, the second part of pretreatment is actually applying a conversion coating, and um, both of those um, portions of pretreatment, the cleaning and the conversion coating, are really important. And so. Um, again, that's why I, and most of our time is actually spent, 
um, probably in the pre-treatment process, uh, probably a little bit longer time on pre-treatment than we do surface prep. And then uh, when we go ahead and actually put a coating on, it probably takes about the same amount of time that pre-treatment does. Um, but uh, pre-treatment and the conversion coatings that we're putting on are extremely important. And uh, the chemicals that we're using, obviously there's costs associated with those. So it's a whole extra step that's done before we're actually putting a coating on. And uh, I just want to make sure customers understand that and, and understand why do we pre-treat? Um, what's the different, like what happens if we don't pre-treat? And I, I feel like that um, if you don't know a lot about pre-treatment, you never heard about it before, you might think that like maybe it's totally unnecessary. You know, why does Kaser do that? All it does is add cost. It, you know, I can go somewhere else and get it done cheaper and they don't do pre-treatment and the parts still look good when they're coming out. So this thing that Kaser calls pre-treatment that they're doing, we can't really even see it. So is it even like, what are they even doing and why, why are they doing it? If, if it's not affecting the visual looks of the end product, right. When I pick it up. And so, um, I think it's a good time. I'm going to bring in bill and, uh, he's going to help clarify some of the pre-treatment questions that we have. So the guest on today's KaiserCast episode 14 is my really good friend and uh, pre-treatment rep, Bill Townsend. We talked to him uh, on here about like a year ago. I talked to him probably every couple of weeks because I have a question about pre-treatment. He's a great source of knowledge for us. And recently I got to thinking and me and Chloe were talking that like, I feel like um, instead of calling ourselves Kaiser Blessing and Coatings, we should be like Kaiser surface prep and pre-treatment because most of what we do is actually um, not coating the part. That's actually a very small piece of what we do. That's what the customer sees. But um, all the stuff that happens underneath the coating is where most of our time is spent. So I thought it'd be good to have Bill on and uh, talk to him about pre-treatment and just kind of ask him some basic questions about it just to try to help everybody understand what it is, why we do it. Um, I feel like there's a lot of people um, that maybe don't understand it, or even if they do, they think that it's not necessary for their project. Um, so I just wanted to bring Bill on and talk to him. I always enjoy talking to him about pretreatment. How are you doing this afternoon, Bill? Good afternoon, Jace. Hey, I'm blessed to be here and and uh, very grateful. Um, you know, you bring that that point up, and and I think it is a perfect way to to rephrase or rename or rebrand it because you're correct. Kaiser pretreatment and service prep surface prep is is probably more applicable to what you guys do on a on a day to day basis. And uh, even further, like you talked. It's something that is rarely thought about, and it's usually low man or woman on the totem pole that is doing it, and it's usually an afterthought. However, it's probably one of the most important steps that uh, anyone, be it a small shop, a large shop, a large manufacturer, a small shop or manufacturer can do. It's probably the most important step in the whole process as far as um, uh, painting and, and adhesion and, and the surface finish at the end. So since like you, you've spent so much time and most of your career um, in pretreatment, if you hear somebody say or ask like, why do you pretreat and why is it important? Like, can't we just skip it and just paint or powder coat without it? What 
what kind of feelings does that bring up when you hear somebody kind of dis- dismiss pretreatment and, and think that it's not important? I say, oh, boy, we better get a cup of coffee. We're going to sit down and talk for a while because we got to get to the bottom. So uh, um, the reality is um, the pretreatment aspect is probably the most important in the finished process to get two things accomplished. Number one, to get good adhesion, meaning the coating to stick or the paint to stick to the substrate. Whether it's liquid coating or powder coating, the paint needs to stick to the metal, basically. Um, So that's the first thing, is to get that metal or substrate clean enough that the paint can stick to it. Then the second level, or the second part of the dimension then, is what type of performance do we want out of that powder, meaning, or that paint, meaning, do I want that, you know, grain drill paint to slick, stick on that disc until it gets to the field, and that's fine because the first, you know, 50 feet, it's going to be gone, uh, on, and I know that, and that's not a problem. Or is it, you know, a beautiful red or green fire truck that needs to look good 30 years down the road? So this, the second level of it is the actual coating performance, the first level being the adhesion um, of the of the uh, of the coating. So back to your question: If someone, um, well, why should we be pre-treating, or or what is this cleaning or pre-treating that you're talking about? That's why I say get the cup of coffee because we got to sit down and kind of talk and go through all of those steps. But um, in a, in a nutshell, if you think about it, no matter how well a particular product is either structurally designed or engineering design or how it performs its function, the first thing that the client or customer sees is the color and the paint. So no matter how beautiful design or beautiful functioning the unit is, whatever size or type of unit it may be, if the paint's falling off, the customer's not going to be happy. And so that's the first thing that they're going to see. And usually that's that's the, the last thing that people think about is, oh, yeah, we got to prep it before we paint it, those types of things. So when people think about prepping, I feel like a lot of the time um, they're envisioning in their mind, like if, I, if I'm quoting pretreatment or I tell them, like, oh, we got to pretreat that before we powder coat it, they're thinking, like, oh, yeah, okay, you're just taking a garden hose and rinsing it off, or you're taking a rag and just wiping it down real quick with, like, a damp, moist rag. And that, you know, and I know, that's not the case at all. Um, we have, you know, huge booths for pretreatment, just like we do for when we're spraying powder. We have specialized equipment, um, specialized chemicals uh, to make sure that uh, we do clean the part well and then get pretreatment on it. So I know you probably weren't faced with it much um, in terms of like trying to convince customers or like end consumers um, that pretreatment needed to happen or that like there's a difference between wiping it off with a rag and actually using a heated pressure washer. But like if you were just sitting down trying to explain it to somebody um, that you'd never talked to before or maybe it's just a general public person um, or maybe it's a shop that like currently just wipes parts off with a rag. How, how do you go about trying to help them understand that like um, 
doing it with a pressure wand and the right chemicals is going to be better off than finding a like a simple grain off the shelf at at your local hardware store and just doing it with a rag and a five gallon bucket. Question. Excellent. Um, and we'll kind of go in a, in a kind of a quick little progression because that, that explains it, it perfectly. Basically the first steps are um, the method in which we're going to prepare that substrate or that part. And then the second dimension of it is again, what type of performance are we going to be looking at? So um, if I'm just speaking generally and I'm not in a specific shop or a manufacturing plant where I know what my possibilities are and my limitations are, let's just say, like you said, I'm in general public, just giving a quick overview to someone that wants to decide what direction they want to go. So if we talk about the first level, like you said, is just basically wiping it off with a rag. Um, basically, you're going to have organics and inorganics on the part. The organics are greases, oils, anything that's protecting the metal from rust occurring, but that will also protect or prevent the paint from sticking to that substrate. So that we want to remove. Those are greases and oils. The inorganics would be... Um, uh, smut, shop dust, metal shavings, those types of things, anything inorganic in nature. We want to get those off of the part before we coat them also because they too can affect the adhesion or long-term performance. So if you go to the next level and you say, okay, well, I'm going to solvent wipe it, and there's various types of solvent, and we won't get into the dangerous and the, the, the hazards of, of those and of operators using those, but a lot of people still use various solvents to wipe down the part to get the greases and oils off, quote unquote. Um, and that and that does something, but nine times out of ten, basically we're just moving the greases and oils around on the part, um, making it less thick in some areas and 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 you know more uniform in others. But again, can interfere with adhesion and also long-term performance. The next step would be like a cleaner phosphate that does some degreasing to remove the um, organics and a little bit of phosphate to create a little bit of an etch or a little bit of a conversion coat. And we can talk about the different types of conversion coats in, in a little bit. Um, from there, where you've got like a hand wipe type cleaner phosphate, then you could go, as you mentioned, to a pressure washer or a spraying wine type apparatus where you're going high temp, high heat, high pressure, um, low concentrations of chemicals, but a lot of power and, and energy behind it causing the effect. Um, then the next level would be what's called a multi-stage washer, where let's say a conveyor is bringing through parts through multi-stages. It can run anywhere from two or three stages up to seven, eight, or even sometimes 11-stage washers. Um, and those, again, are all to accomplish different objectives for the different various parts. But that would be the spectrum of the type of pretreatment. So if, if a person is new to pretreatment, they're gonna say, wow, there's a lot involved. Each one of those has its own facets and, and dimensions in it, but you can see the full gamut of, of, uh, of different methods of cleaning and prepping that part just prior to painting it. When you were talking about like moving greases and oils around on the part, like I know exactly in my mind what that looks like, but I thought of a good comparison for like somebody who 
doesn't necessarily work with metals a lot and doesn't understand like how nasty those greases and oils are and even if you can't see them how much is on there so let me uh tell you this idea that i have as like a comparison and see if you see if you think that this is a good comparison so if someone like went out in their vehicle and drove through like uh, a rainstorm and through like a field with a ton of mud let's say with their pickup truck and it's just coated in mud and then you're gonna go now you got to get it clean it's nice out it's not raining anymore so your options um kind of like what you just talked about your options for pre-treatment of your our metal substrates when we're going to coat the options of just cleaning your truck with water and it's all muddy you could grab a five gallon bucket put water in it and have a rag and you could go try to clean all the mud off of the vehicle but you're basically just going to be moving around it's really hard to get it off or you could take it to the car wash where you can do it yourself but they have a pressure one there and you can actually use that with a little bit of soap too and you actually remove the mud from the vehicle and be you know pressure washing it off instead of just pushing it around with a rag that's like this i feel like that's a good comparison that's an awesome comparison yep exactly and after you then you get it all perfect and you get it uh, clean and ready and prepped and if you want it really nice what do you do you hit the final wax at the end and hit a little no no uh no spot rinse at the end and 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 there's your final seal for your yeah. long-term corrosion protection right and i think people what people <laughs> what a good analogy with the car wash and the truck in the mud jace that's perfect because i think people what what i think they have a hard time wrapping their mind around is how greasy and oily these parts are when we get them like even though it may not look like it if you pick them up with your bare hands your hands are black after you've moved them around or there's certain parts where like it's literally like standing oil on it it's not necessarily quite running off but like it'll make your hands wet with oil when you grab them and that's why pre-treatment is so important but i think a lot of people when they're thinking steel it's just like it's just steel there's no it's you know just blow it off blow the dust off of it and it's fine right yep kind of like you do um when you're making cookies you throw a pat of butter down on the cookie sheet, you grab a little paper towel, you move it around and spread it around, that butter all over the cookie sheet, there yeah. you go, the same thing. Then yeah. you move that, that grease around on the metal. Yeah. And then you know how greasy that is on the cookie sheet afterwards. Right. So, yep. So in I like that analogy with the, the car wash. That's good, Jason. So, yep. so in terms of now that we kind of have everybody on the same page about, you know, what a what it really looks like and how much grease and oil is on these parts and, and how it's important to get all that off and use the right equipment. When we start talking about an actual conversion coating. So now we've got the part clean, we've got all the greases and oils off of it. And now we're talking about actually applying a coating, um, that's going to stick with the part and it's going to be underneath the powder. Um, talk a little bit about, why that conversion coating is important so i guess could we just clean the greases and oils off the part and stop and then just powder coat over it or do we always need to have that conversion coat next great great way to present it let's start at the beginning you said um let's let's say a big part and we're going to refer to steel and um, we've removed now the greases and the oils. The organics have been removed. We haven't done any conversion coat yet. 
but we've just removed the greases and the oils. So now we do know that the powder or the paint will stick fairly well to that metal um, because the organics are off. The problem that we have, first of all, is once that steel starts to hit oxygen, meaning the air, and starts to dry, it's going to want to start to oxidize or go back to its original state, and it's going to want to rust. So that's the first thing. If you get it clean and you take off the oil that's protecting it from rusting, well, guess what? It's going to want to go back to rusting. So you can take apart, degrease it, rinse it, paint it um, without a conversion coating. However, you will not have the long-term protection, nor will you have um, the short-term rust protection prior to that paint being applied. So I'm going to interrupt you real quick. Um, some of our customers would, um, when I'm trying to explain it to them, when we don't put a conversion coating on, if we don't, um, that it will start to rust. And I think they're thinking, well, there's a coating over top of it. I'm not going to see the rust. But the co the metal underneath or the steel underneath will start to rust underneath the coating, correct? That is correct. Excellent segue. It's almost like you practiced this and we didn't. But uh, that's perfect way to to go into the next step, Jace, because yes, you can have the powder or the paint stick to the rust or stick to the metal and the rust underneath. But as what starts to happen is all coatings breathe. And so moisture will get through that paint and go down, hit those sites where we have those rust sites already forming, rehydrate those, and that rust will start to form and build and grow underneath. And that happens and right away, And then that will eventually right? lift and pops. Yep, that can, that can happen at any point. That's correct. And that would be a function of the type of powder and also the mill thickness of the powder. So then the next step is, as you said, what do we do then to try to prevent that? Or what's the next level? And that would be a conversion coat. And there's different types of conversion coats. There's iron phosphate conversions. There's zinc conversions. There's... Um, um, there's, you know, chromate conversions, there, there's uh, zirconium conversion, those types of things. And we don't even need to get into all the differences about those at this point. But suffice to say that if you can look at that part, let's say, and you're looking at that bare metal substrate, now we've got it clean of organics. Now we want to build some type of a conversion coat or protective coating that is going to do two things for us. Number one, it's going to help the paint stick to it better, but also long-term corrosion, it's going to add life to the product and life to that top coat. And uh, a good analogy is to think of this conversion coat as a type of a primer. Now, it's not a primer, but... Think of how a primer acts on an automobile. You have your clean metal, then you have a primer, then you have a top coat. Well, the primer helps everything last longer than the clear coat and those types of things. So the conversion coat, although not a primer, it acts like a primer, and it gives us another layer of protection. And is it the case that with a conversion coat that... Um... And I think this is right, but you'll be able to correct me. When we're for like iron phosphate, for example, we're we're gonna be, and we're still talking about steel, so we're gonna use an iron phosphate conversion coating. There's quite a bit of chemistry happening while we're actually putting the iron phosphate on the part, and are we're getting 
um, an actual bonding with that substrate underneath um, through like a chemical bond, correct? That is correct, and that's a very good way to explain it and put it because in, in your case, as you described, <clears throat> excuse me, we're using a phosphoric acid to create an etch. So basically, we are micro-etching the metal at that point. As soon as those are, organics are gone, we're going to start to eat away, micro-etch that steel, pull some ferrous ions out of the steel, out of the metal, react with some of the accelerators in the phosphate product, and then redeposit a new layer on top of that metal where it's actually bonded in an inert layer of conversion coat bonded to that metal. Okay, so like, and I don't know if you're going to know the answer to this, and that's okay if you don't, but so like we're, we're doing a conversion coat. We actually literally bond it to the metal. Um, like chemistry has happened. Bonds have been made. So we know that that is stuck really well. Now, let's say we didn't do the conversion coat at all. We just powder coat straight over top of that metal. There's not any chemical bonding happening between the powder coating itself and the metal. There's a lot of chemistry involved in making that powder and getting it to flow out and cure in the oven. But I think I'm talking correctly when I say that there's really no chemical bond between the powder coat and a metal substrate that has no conversion coating. Is that right? Or are you? do you know if that's true? That is correct. And again, um, the different types of powders and the different powder companies will have agents and elements that are designed in the powders to give you longer or shorter, shorter um, long-term corrosion protection. But, but we don't... in any case, back to your thing, yes, exactly, back to your question, as we talked, moisture will go through that coating eventually. And so if you think of the coating and the moisture is going through it, it goes straight direct to metal, it's going to start hydrating and start working on that metal right away. If we go through the coating, and then we have to go through a conversion coat, in this case an iron phosphate coating, it's got to work through that now newly established inert layer that we have to work through, which it will eventually, and then get to the steel and start to rust. So when we powder coat directly over top of a conversion coating, is there... It probably depends on the conversion coating itself, but is there some chemical bonds and chemistry happening between the conversion coat and the powder to get good adhesion in between the conversion coat and powder itself? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it can be powder specific. And by that, I mean, um, if you have a very, um, let's say you have a government spec or a, a very high-end you know, long-term corrosion spec, you'll want to do a matrix where you test several different types of conversion chemistries with a particular powder. Or if the spec is for the pretreatment, then you've got to test several different powders for that pretreatment because the type of conversion coating can react differently with the type of coating. Okay. As I say, you know, coating specific. Yes, exactly. So this, so this is really good point, and I haven't really thought about it in this depth, and I think this is a really good way to explain it. So, like, I think our customers understand that if we blast first, we're creating a really big surface profile. You can see it. It's rough. Um, we can, like, make infographics about it and show really jagged edge of the surface profile that the blasting creates. 
And then when we powder coat over top of that, we're just ignoring pretreatment for a minute. We just powder coat directly over top of a blasted substrate. I think people can understand that like, okay, that powder is mechanically gripping the steel substrate underneath because it has a really good blast profile. So that makes sense. But then when we start talking about pretreatment, I feel like that people, you know, if they understand that we're, we're just trying to get the parts clean, first of all, so, so anything will stick to it. Then they're kind of, their train of thought kind of stops there and like, Hey, we've got it clean. There's no oil on it. Now we're good. We can powder coat it. But in that particular case, we, we basically have powder coating just sitting flat on top of the metal and really no great adhesion between the powder and the metal. We don't have a surface profile from blasting. We have no conversion coating. So really we don't have a, a very good interaction between the powder and the metal substrate underneath. But what Bill's was just talking about is now we're, if we do pretreat and we have steel and we're doing iron phosphate, we're going to etch the metal just a little bit, micro etch it because of the phosphoric acid. And then we start to actually build an iron phosphate coating. So we've, there's actually chemical bonds happening there. It's the conversion coating is actually stuck to the metal with chemistry. And then when we powder coat over top of that conversion coating, there's some more chemistry that happens that locks, kind of locks the powder coating into the conversion coat. So now the powder is really stuck well to that substrate because of basically the conversion coating is making that happen. Whereas when that's not there and it's not blasted, we really don't have that great of adhesion. Correct, Bill? That is a perfect way to explain it. And um, um, we could even take it to one more level. When you think of that blast profile, it's going to be like a mountain, isn't it? Yeah. Microscopically think of that blast profile. So if you don't do a conversion coat, you have peaks of the mountain and you have valleys. So as you coat that product, let's say you're doing even two mils perfectly across that substrate, guess what? During those valleys, you're going to have over two mils, and at the top of the peaks, you're going to have less than two mils. So you're going to have a much thinner coating at the top of those peaks than you are at the bottom, and therefore those will be your first point of failure. So by doing the micro-etch and the phosphate coating, we level off the peaks and fill in the valleys with our new phosphate coating or zirconium coating and those types of things, and then give you, uh, uh, again, that same layer of protection that you just discussed with that conversion coat underneath the coating itself. So the conversion coat, so the conversion coat really is promoting adhesion very significantly, and I think people miss that. Yep, that's true. And then and then the second phase is the long term. How long is that paint going to last? You know, and then that extra corrosion protection. So exactly. Yep. So can you walk us through when, like, so we've coated a part um, or cleaned it, have a converted coating, it's been powder coated, and so now it's sitting outside in the rain. Let's say it's just a railing or something and it's water's working its way down through the coating but there is a conversion coating there um how does that water interact with that conversion coating um and how much longer is it is it helping that coating last um because there's a conversion coating there versus another railing that's stand sitting right next to it that has no conversion coating on it excellent okay um 
Well, let's say we've got those two, and let's say we have three railings, because I'm going to throw in a you, – you said two, but I'm going to always stir it up and give you a third, uh, okay. because it'll make a good point. And you'll see where I'm going in a minute, because it makes a huge point. If, if we just take the steel and we get it clean and we have no conversion coat, the paint is adhered to it, the moisture goes through the paint, it comes out, it comes in and out. Eventually, it's going to start to work on that steel, um, and that's going to start to rehydrate those little sites in the steel and, again, start to rust, start to lift, start to blister underneath. Okay? The next level is if we go and we do the iron phosphate that we talked about, and we do a, a phosphate coating. So that coating then is still having the same propensity, if you will, to either absorb that moisture or not, depending on the type of powder you're using. But also um, now, instead of going directly to steel, we're going and we're hitting the phosphate coating. So it's got to work and eat away through that phosphate coating that we've developed, and it's it's bonded to that metal as basically a new layer um, before it can get to the the steel substrate underneath. So most people, once they get to that, man, we are we are absolutely all the way to the top, you know, as Zig Ziglar used to say. But then there are some people, like actually, honestly, Kaiser goes kind of to the next level, and on your products, you go and you clean and you phosphatize into a phosphate coating, then you rinse with pure, clean RO water, and then you go and you apply a zirconium coating, which is another type of conversion coating, and then you do the top coat. So in that formulation, if you look at it, you've got the protection of the top coat, you've got the protection of the zirconium conversion coating, and then you've got the protection of the phosphate coating, and then you're down to bare steel. So to quantitatively put it in, it'll give you 10 years versus one year of that. You can't really do that as yeah. far as numbers. But, but yes, I mean, those are good ideas and good examples just by those various layers that you're applying. And, you know, that kind of improved in salt spray, you know, tests and those types of things. But, again, there's no correlation between salt spray and number of years out in the field if you're in Minnesota or Florida or, you know, different parts of the coast and those types of things. So what if someone says, okay, yeah, 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 I, I see what you're saying. We're put, well, the more conversion coating layers we put on there, the better it's protected. But they're, they're still skeptical, and they say, you know, what if I just put three layers of powder coating on? I, I know I can make it look good. I know that I, I can gel it and cure it fully, and it's going to – everything will work in terms of that end, and, and I'm just going to build a lot of film thickness. I know how to do it without getting a lot of orange peel. Um, why – what would your argument with them be to if they said, I can do just as good a job with three layers of powder versus somebody that's doing um, – iron phosphate, zirconium, and one layer of powder? Honestly, Jace, I'm an old fart, so I'd say, okay, let's try it. Proof is in the pudding. And, I, and I'd test it out before I'd, I'd try to do any difference, you know, as far as to change their mind. And I'd say, hey, let's test it and let's see what we got. But the real question there to be at that point would be, are they talking about fully getting it degreased or not and then applying three layers of top coat? And then the three layers of top coat, are you going to have inner coat adhesion issues and right. you have to gel and those types of things and all of that? 
You know, so that is possible. I never say anything is not possible, but I say, okay, well, let's try it and we'll see if it makes halfway sense to try it, you know. But uh, but again, um, without that first level of free treatment and, and getting the part clean, we can't do anything. We can't even form a conversion coat without getting the oils off. Okay, is a conversion coat, so let's say the oils are off, is a conversion coat better at combating water that's on it versus powder? Meaning we know that powder is porous and water is going to go through it, and usually if we've done everything right, it goes through the powder coating, then it hits our conversion coat. But if we just compare like, um, uh, I guess what I'm saying is if we had two layers of powder and it works through the first layer of powder and sitting on the second, um, are we better off, and maybe you don't know the answer and that's okay, are we better off that way with two layers of powder where water just has to keep working through powder or does it, does a layer of conversion coating stand a better chance against against some water because it's chemically formulated um, to do better? Again, I would always say pre-test with a nice matrix, scientific, you know, matrix with minimal variables. But to answer your question, um, I still believe the answer is some type of conversion coat, um, be it iron phosphate or zirconium, is going to give you greater protection long-term than just two coats. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Without doing that, if that makes sense. You know, now now maybe the conversion and, and two coats on top of that, man, you just went to 5,000 hours and everybody's happy. But, but, you know, that again would have to be tested. But I, I still think, again, the fact that we need to form that conversion coat and and uh, uh, people can get into, if you really want to get into, um, you know, the type of coating and the conversion coats and how it changes the polarity of the metal and, and you know, those types of things. And it, you know, kind of gets some, some little high end, you know, over over a street guys, you know, up into the white white coats and the laboratory guys. But uh, but it does kind of neutralize and change polarity and those types of things. But again, I that's beyond my pay grade. But but uh, I, I know enough to be dangerous on that. But but it's it's quite a process of what's going on when you really do a conversion coat. It's amazing. Yeah, I always get really intrigued when we start talking about the chemistry of all the coatings. Um, even though I feel like I know a lot about it, anytime that I talk to you, I learn something new. So let's shift gears a little bit and let's say that um, the a powder coating facility knows that they need to pre-treat. They have a good system in place. Um, you're selling chemicals to them, let's say, and or maybe you're maybe you don't. Maybe this is the first time you've been to, to their shop. Um, when you're walking around and you're trying looking at their process and just trying to evaluate, you know, are they doing it right? Could they do a better job? What are some of the key things that you look for um, to decide if their pre-treatment process is going the way it should? The the way I think that it works out best both for myself to gain a good picture, but also for any 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 client or manufacturer to get a good picture is if I can if I can start at the very beginning. I want to see where the supply chain starts. Where is the steel coming in? What type of steel is it? Is it consistent? What are the incoming soils? What are the incoming oils? And then follow it all the way through the process. What are we adding to it? What are we taking away? Because everything from the, all the way from the what kind of a truck does it arrive on, those types of things, 
all will affect the pretreatment. As silly as that sounds, all of those steps and everything from the mill to, okay, it's time to paint it, has to be dealt with at that pretreatment area. So I take an audit and I look and I walk all the way through and I kind of walk all the way through the whole process, denote what we're putting on, what we're taking off, what's occurring, where are we getting heat, where are we not. Then we need to look at, okay, what's the best way to pretreat that part? So then, like you said in your example, you're going in and you're evaluating. I'm going to see exactly what type of process they're using for pretreatment. Is it hand wipe? Is it is it spray wand? Is it recirculation? Is it a dip? You know, those types of things. But then once I've got to that point, and the real proof in the pudding is what does it look like after the part is, quote, unquote, clean or prepared for paint? You know, is it coming out of a dry off, coming, you know, just air dried? Is it, is it, what does it look like when it's going into that paint booth? And uh, if you want, I can get into a little scenario of what the part looks like in the various scenarios of good, bad, ugly, and different or, or not. But, yeah, but basically yeah, that's, that, that, would that be good at this point? Yeah, okay. So. <laughs> Excuse me. Basically, if we talk about or think about what we've just talked about thus far, we've got a steel part. We've taken the oil off. If we do not conversion coat it, it's going to turn back and it's going to be rusty. So the first thing I look for is, okay, is the part rusty or not? You know, um, so let me back up. The first thing I look for is actually water, water, what's called water break or water break free as it's coming out of the wash or out of the wash process. What is that? A water break is simply, if you think of a, a waxed car and you spray it with water, all those little beads building up on that waxed car, that's a water break. We've created wax on the car to create surface tension to make that water bead up and go and hopefully run off the wax. In a part, we don't want that wax or quote-unquote grease because that'll prevent the paint. So if we see water beating up like little bubbles, like wax on a car, then we're not going to have adhesion at that point because we still have organics or grease or maybe wax on the part and the, and the paint isn't going to stick. So that's the first thing I look for. Is the water just sheeting off like that old dishwasher commercial or is it beating up like water on a wax car? So if it's beating up, I say, hey, wait, there's still oil on there. Let's check adhesion. And then we stop. If it's sheeting off and that looks good, then the next level is, okay, is it rusty after it dries or not? That would tell us whether we have a good conversion coat again. Because if we've removed the greases, but we have not done enough conversion coat, then the part is going to be rusty because we don't have any protection from the conversion coat. If the part is water break-free, meaning sheeting off, there's no rust after it dries, and it's a uniform, kind of an even color. It can be gray, it can be blue, it can be a rainbow, it can be an iridescent, but we just don't want rust. And all different steels and alloys will turn different colors. Um, I'm, I'm sure your clients and, and guests understand that, where they've seen the different colors and the rainbows and stuff. That's some type of conversion coating reacting with the, with the steel. The next level of examination would be, ooh, it's all white and powdery and chalky like somebody threw white baby powder on it, okay? That would be an excessive amount of iron phosphate. 
you can only build the iron phosphate so thick and then the left the excess is left on there as unreacted we don't want to coat over that just like we don't want to coat over oil or over rust so that's what i would then start to examine the part in specific the first portion was i was examining the process in the incoming and added soils but the last of course is examining the part itself and what does it look like through you know their given pretreatment system that makes sense um if you're if you're walking through a shop and uh, you're just observing let's say and uh, let's say like let's just use Kaser for example like you know overall you know what chemicals we use overall we do a good job um, but let's say I just called you and said Bill I think we're doing good um, I don't really have any issues we're not seeing you know I don't I think we have water break free um, we're not seeing any rust issues we usually have a good uniform coating can you just walk through and and maybe make some pointers or just look um and and tell me some things that we need to improve on um are, are there any are there a couple things that like people that are out there pre-treating right now that that maybe that they could tell their operators just a couple quick tips that they maybe didn't know things that like if you're watching somebody pre-treat a part um and you're standing in the corner of the wash bay and you're watching them go at it what are like maybe one or two things that you see a brand new operator doing wrong that they can easily fix Ah, okay. That's a that's a great question. I hadn't thought about that. But um, in specific to like a spray one application, um, I think one of the one of the biggest things that that helps the end result of the product is when you first begin while the part is still dry, whatever that first step is, start at the bottom and go left and right and work your way up, and then come back down. Most operators, especially brand new, are going to do like you do when you go into the car wash bay. You grab the wand and you start at the top of the car and you work your way down. However, when you're doing a pretreatment process, whichever process it is, those first initial lines and those first initial drips of where that fluid or that solution is going to flow will create etch marks in your steel. Okay. So so uh, that would be the probably the first simple little thing. The other thing that that I think is probably the um, the easiest way for me. Now um, I jumped into a lot of different types of manufacturing, you know, um, products, sizes, and those types of things, obviously. But I tried to develop what I called a picture frame, and I would choose whether it was the door on the side of a service body, or if it was, you know, a certain section of a big piece of steel, or whatever. And I would start at the bottom, go left and right, work my way up to the top to wet it out and get the whole part wet from the bottom top first. And then I would do what I called a picture frame. And I would wash around and, and basically create a picture frame of whatever area I was going to wash and then go back and repeat that pattern just like I was painting it, maintaining the same distance away from the metal, back and forth, left and right you know, up and then back down. And then, of course, when you're rinsing, you want to rinse from the top down. But when you are your initial wash, you want to go from the bottom up. So when you were at, when we're doing manual pretreatment, um, I think that, you know, we try when we're, 
we we've had uh kevin he's the guy that does our pre-treatment at, at our facility and he's been doing it for a long time for us and he's really really good at it um and every once in a while we train someone new because we need to have two people washing in the separate bays at once um but i think sometimes I, I, this kind of goes along with the whole theme where people think pre-treatment is not that important and okay yeah we do it and because people think we need to or this customer wants us to and people are just trying to kind of hurry through it but really if you know if someone watches a video uh, of manual pretreatment happening they might think like oh they're just randomly spraying in there but but that's not the case bill made a good point when he said that you know he, he has a specific pattern that he follows he stays the same distance away from the part the whole time it's almost like he's painting the part because we want to try to do something really good and consistent because if we're just going, Bill, if we're just going random across this whole part, what what could happen? I mean, it's gonna get it, it would be it's gonna be really uneven as far as our cleaning and conversion coating, right? Just like if we when we were powder coating it, we went random all over the place. We'd have light spots and heavy spots. That's the same thing when we're doing a conversion coating, right? Exactly, exactly. And what a way to a good way to put it. Because if you took your gun and liquid or or powder and you just went random over, you'd have five mils here, two mils there, and stag over there, and and you know, um, same thing with the pretreatment. And you can have as a result, you can have some areas that are still oily and you won't have anything sticking. You could have some areas that are rusty. You could have some areas that are pretreated well. And then you could have some areas that are white and powdery that have excess, you know, and 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 so therefore it, you've got a lot of a lot of room for error just by you know, like you say, running it haphazardly, which is not is not good. So I feel like that um, at Kaiser we're set up uh, with batches with batch booths, a batch booth for spraying powder, um, batch ovens, batch pretreatment where we're doing it by hand with heated pressure wands. Um, and I feel like we do a great job with that and it keeps us really burst out because we do a lot of big things that other people can't do because their line sizes aren't big enough. But sometimes I feel like we run into when I'm trying to um, earn a new customer or, or a, customer, a brand new customer comes to, to our facility and they have medium sized part that would fit on a line in a lot of them and they walk through our facility and they're really concerned with the fact that our pretreatment is not automated, that it's by hand in a wash bay. And I feel like what we have um, can compete um, with an automated line. But what are maybe some of the differences between a manual pretreatment and an automated? And do you personally think that um, manual pretreatment is always inferior to the automated? Or if done the right way, can a manual pretreatment give you the same results as like an automated line? What a great question. And yes, and yes, and yes, all three. Uh, and, and I don't mean that jokingly, I'm very serious. So let's talk about some pluses and minuses real quickly. Uh, take a standard three-stage washer. Let's say we won't even go to five because we'll do it more simply and more appropriately to a manual system. But whether it's a three stage or a five stage, as most people know that are listening to this, you've got a recirculation pump, you've got heat or no heat, you've got nozzles and you've got spray. You put the parts on the line, you turn everything on and away you go. And then it runs through. It's consistent every single time as long as everything is consistent. 
Well, what if Louis didn't remember to put the chemical in stage one? <laughs> what, if, what if Henry forgot to turn on stage three? Well, you know, those things do happen. And, and so, again, that's an issue. If, if in a perfect world, everything is exactly the same, as long as it's exactly the same. Um, the second dimension is, from your manual standpoint, if the operator does a haphazard job, it's not going to be any better than Louis not turning on stage three or whoever it was. However, if the operator does do a good job and has a good system and a good process well-defined um, and follows that system, he can actually do better. He or she can do better than an automated system because let's say that your parts coming in are not exactly perfectly uniform in grease or color or even in alloy content, which we know none of them are. So if your operator is well-trained and knows what he, what he or she is looking for, they can see that, oh, on the middle of that part, some man or woman put their greasy hand or greasy glove right in the middle. I got to spend an extra, you know, 30 seconds to get that greasy handprint off of there. Whereas an automatic washer system wouldn't know that. Okay, I'm gonna cut, I'm gonna cut you off real quick. This is gonna make you smile, Bill. You're gonna be really happy to hear this. So, Kevin, really experienced with pretreatment, and this is a great example of what Bill just talked about. That an operator could maybe do a better job than the automated line if they're really well trained because they can actually see what's happening in front of their eyes. So we had a bunch of aluminum panels, probably like 250 of them. They're like 20 inches wide by 48 inches tall. So like two foot by four foot. Um, and that's all Kevin was doing all day is last week, I think. Um, and just going through them doing our, that was a five stage that we were actually doing by hand. And, uh, he had one cart where there was a couple panels and I just happened to be walking through the shop and he called me and our floor manager in there. He said, Hey, come look at this. I've been uh, working on these and, um, it, the water's beating up. I hit them twice as much as I did the other panels, but it's still beating up. So there's got to be, there's something on here and it's not quite right. And so that's the exact example what Bill just gave. And this is real life, real world. Kevin's done it long enough that he wasn't getting a water break free surface on two of these panels out of the run of 250 that we did. And he caught it. So we took those down. We did some, put some extra elbow grease into them, let them dry, sanded them with a DA sander, hit them with another solvent, then rehung them and let Kevin go through his pretreatment process again. But if that would have went through an automated line, um, probably wouldn't have been caught. Exactly correct. Yep, it would have went through. The color would have went on. It applied. It went through the gear, come back out. Would have went out to the customer, went out in the field, and, uh-oh, we got a lot of phone calls. What happened? So does that put a smile on your face, Bill? I feel like when, when some an operator's paying that close attention, that makes you smile. It does. But when somebody comes up and says, hey, something's not right here, I love that. Even though that's a scary thing, it shows that they are paying attention and they're well-trained. They know something is out of order, and we stop and we fix it. And when we, That's when he, awesome. When Kevin pulled us in there, he's like, hey, come over here. And then he grabbed his RO water rinse, and he went right to the two panels and hit them. He's like, see, it's not. it, it was beating up right here. There you go. Yep. I, uh, I ran into that issue several years ago with a, with a large truck manufacturer, a truck body manufacturer, and they received a whole shipment of doors from another country with uh, some special little chemical fish oil stuff on it. And uh, it all went through and they had a lot of problems. 
Um, but, you know, the operator, like in your case, got it and it saved the problem. So it didn't happen. So it was, that was awesome. So I kind of interrupt your train of thought and you were comparing and contrasting the automated lines in the, um, and, uh, manual pressure one. And you kind of talked about how, like in a perfect world, automated, it's going to give you the same thing every time. Um, if there are some inconsistencies in the parts, then a manual operation might do a little better job because they can actually, um, see it. Is there anything else that would be, if I was trying to convince a customer of ours that like, Hey, you know, I know that what we do is manual, but like it's, it works. We do it right. Um, we're, we wouldn't be any better if we had an automated in, um, in most of the reason why I think that is because we get such weird geometry of parts. I feel like that we, we can do a better job when we're doing manual than automated because it just, the geometries are so odd. Well, and that was the second point and you just said it perfectly, Jace. Because if you think about a manufacturer in a wash, be running through parts, let's say uh, on a uh, on a on a skid loader, let's say, right? And and oh, well, it's also running through these little narrow bars that, that hold the shocks. Okay. Well, in one case, you got the sprays against the outside of the bucket, three inches. In another case, you're three feet or two and a half feet from the sprays. Okay, because it's the same washer washing different parts. So in in your case, that yes, you could get better because of the geometry, get better coverage and keep more uniform phosphate coating by getting closer to those parts and those weird geometries. Now, we always design the recirculation washers, hopefully with enough forgiveness and enough margin of error that it's hopefully going to get everywhere and do everything and hit everywhere with enough contact time and enough air, hopefully, to get that accomplished. But if a, if a well-trained operator is actually doing it by hand, you know, you're going to have a, a chance to have a little bit better geometry and application at that, at that point. Okay. Um, I've heard it from you a million times, but I want, I want to hear you explain it to me again. Talk to me about time, temperature, and concentration. Okay. Um, basically, there's there's three main factors, and then we'll throw in a fourth. But basically, there's three. Time, temperature, concentration, and the fourth we'll talk at the end is pH, but we'll put that on the back burner for a second. So um, if I'm washing a part, we've got time, temperature, and concentration of the chemistry. Once we've defined what is our best time, contact time, with the solution on the part? What is our best temperature? And what is our best concentration? If I adjust any one of those three factors up or down, I may need to compensate the other. Meaning, let's say I normally wash apart the other two. Meaning, normally, let's say I wash apart at 130. Okay? At 3%, now let's go 2% concentration, 130 degrees and you know about 60 seconds well if my 130 the burner goes out and i can't get it lit and now i'm running at you know 90 degrees well i don't have that heat to attack those heat sensitive soils or greases 
So I'm either going to have to most likely spend more time, there's our time, temperature and concentration, more time to concentrate, to compensate for less temperature, or I may need to bump up my concentration of the chemistry a little bit to make up for the lack of temperature. And, and the same goes, you know, for all three elements. And then you can throw in pH a little bit and stuff too, but that's kind of kind of secondary. That's more in the formation of the phosphate or the conversion coat. So me and Bill notoriously have not really arguments, not really even disagreements anymore, just more of poking fun at each other back and forth. But traditionally, I like to run very low chemical concentrations. And, uh, and early on, Bill, me and Bill probably butted heads on it when we first were getting to know each other. Um, but over time, he's just kind of come to the conclusion that this is Kayser concentrations and they're going to be light. Um, what do you have to say about that, Bill? Jace always knows best. Is that what I'm supposed to say? It says right here in my little list. Jace always knows best. No, not a serious. No, there's no little list, folks. Um, on, on a serious note, I get very nervous, especially when I first start working with a client, if they're running on the edge and I don't know what their team, how their team is trained and how their team performs, especially when I walk away. So I like to have a little margin of error um, is what we're talking specifically about is your spray wand application and the concentrations that you were running you know, on the spray one. And and if you run them very lean, you know, as long as the operator knows what he's looking for, he or she can adjust with time and, and, and temperature, but mostly watching part configuration. You can actually start to see the greases move off of a part once you uh, start really watching it. And you can actually start to see the, the, the conversion coat take place in the metal. So if an operator is well-trained, that's great. But nine times out of ten, as we talked earlier in the in in this talk, um, you know, it's low totem, you know, low man on the totem pole. It's it's the first person in. It's usually a very low paid job. It's you know nobody likes it. It's hot. It's dirty. It's wet. You know, it's it's not a great place to be. But it's so important. So um, if they know that, then it's different. But if the operator, you know, I'm not sure their operation or whatever, then I do like to have a little bit of margin and error, you know, and in that case, a little bit more chemistry, a little bit more temperature, a little bit more time in, in, in training just to make sure that everything will, will come out well. But uh, um, no, it's, it's worked out well what you guys have done, and, and, it's a, and it's a beautiful process and operation. It's always fun to joke with Bill about it because, because I agree with him that um, we do run on the edge quite a bit. Um, and w when we're talking about concentration, what we're talking about is like how much chemical we're using per gallon of water, basically. Um, and so typically in chemicals, you usually are going to use between two and, and 4%. Um, and I, we, we try to just run as lean as, as we can and still get good cleaning, still get good pretreatment. Um, but Bill's right. When you're running right on the edge of that, that means that if anything is not quite right, then we're not getting it clean enough. We're not getting enough pretreatment on it. So it does take a lot of attention to detail to be able to run that lean and a lot of skill. And um, over time, we've, we've built that up and we have really consistent, like Kevin is very consistent pretreatment operator. 
I'm like, I just told that story earlier, so I feel like that he can catch it. But I agree with Bill. If it's somebody brand new, you kind of want the equipment to do more of the work than the operator has to because they're just unfamiliar. Um, and so then you, you want to make sure that you're probably running a little bit higher concentrations. One thing that I use as kind of a checker when I'm walking around the wash bay, just, just as like a quick, like the best way is to actually get out your titration kit and, and check the chemicals, which is what Bill always would do when he came and uh, would tour our shop and uh, check over a process. He would always take samples of our chemicals, um, of the mixture coming out of the end of the wand and actually tell what the concentration was by doing a titration. And we still do that, but in reality, we don't do it enough. Um, we're always busy and we're, we don't wanna take the time, don't think we have the time to check those concentrations with a titration. But an easy way that I can tell pretty quickly is just by walking in the wash bay when it's not being used or in between carts and just taking a, just smelling what's happening. And usually if you, if there's no chemical smell, we got an issue. If there's a strong chemical smell, we're probably in a pretty good spot. Is, did you ever use the smell test bill when you're walking through plants? No, but I love it. That sounds great. I don't think, I don't think I could fill out my service reports very well that way, but, but it sounds, I mean, there, there is validity to it. There is validity. Um, and, uh, and, and after a while, Jason, and we're getting off subject a little bit, but, but it shows really where things are consistent. I can pick up now a bottle of shampoo, like a, like a free and clear shampoo and, and smell it and go, Hmm. That's just like that old Fremont formula, 427 cleaner phosphate <laughs> or something, you know? And, and so you joke about that, but that is really true. So thank you, Paul Stuckman and Wayne Harlstead for that. And I'm not joking, <laughs> but, uh, but, but you can, you, the smells, you can kind of pick up on it after a while, but, but uh, um, that's, a, that's kind of interesting about the, about the booth aspect of it. All right, let's change subjects again a little bit. Let's try to help our, our like general public customers out a little bit more. Is there any way for them to know once they've received a coded part and it's in their possession, is there really any good way for them to be able to tell if that was pre-treated properly? They can't, can they see it visually or not? The, the best way is to do, I think, the old-fashioned water break-free test. And, and basically take a clean squirt bottle and uh, make sure that, you know, the little pistons aren't full of silicone grease or whatever in the, in the, in the spray bottle or a little garden spray that is clean and, and use either RO water um, or distilled water is, is best, um, you know, or DI water if you can get it, but that's more difficult. But basically, so it's a purified water and basically you take and you lightly spray that over the part and, and basically wet out the part with the water. If there's any areas where it beads up like water on a wax car, that tells you it is not prepared properly and you've got organics and my powder is not going to stick. In okay, that so you're, you're talking about a part that's just been pre-treated before a coating, correct? Exactly, yep, yep. Is there any way for a customer to tell once they receive, like let's say it's a person that brought in their lawn chair and they're picking it up and it's gloss black now, we powder coated it. There's really no way for them to visually tell if we actually did pretreatment or not. They have to take our word for it, right? That's correct. They'll know in a few months. 
Stuff okay. they won't Time. know right now. <laughs> Time. Yeah, I'm sorry. That sounds horrible, but yeah, they'll know in a few months whether you know uh, anybody did it right or not. And it does make a difference. And the type of chemistry makes a difference. And the process makes a difference. And uh, and how many steps. And also the quality of the water. So all of those things can make a difference. You know. Um, so on, talk on the end result. Talking about differences, there's usually three main steel categories um maybe more maybe you can add a few more but like hot rolled steel hot rolled pickled in oil or cold rolled um do we need to be pre-treating those differently the process is usually the same however your outcomes will be different um and and i'll explain that let me give you a quick little definition of each and then it'll make more sense if if you think of um steel and alloys and all different things being put together melted down um i almost said mobile homes but but yes exactly beer cans mobile homes or whatever all put together heated up molten mess and then rolled out with these big rollers, and then that's going to create a scale because you got these cold rollers with hot molten steel forming big sheets of metal. So that scale, which is basically, you know, the reaction of the cold rollers and the hot steel, you know, like you burn your toast. So basically it's like burnt toast. That's the scale. That's hot rolled. Well, the next level is you take that same steel and you then put it in an acid, and you pickle it. So now you're pickling off that burnt toast, and so you got the toast underneath, the steel underneath, but now you've pickled off that hot rolled material, and now you got to oil it real quick so it doesn't get rusty again. The third is a cold rolled process, and like you said, there's several, but, but let's just stay with the three. The cold roll process is a usually a thinner gauge material it's not used in structural steel but it's used a lot of times in panels and enclosures and shelving and those types of things however it doesn't need to go through the big molten process and therefore it is quote unquote cold rolled and pressed and therefore doesn't have the hot scale on it um, again pluses and minuses of each type of material um, but when we're we're looking at pre-treating you can pre-treat them all the same way however if you want long-term corrosion protection your best bet is not because that scale can break off and break away from itself even if you've done everything perfectly to prepare and coat it the steel can break away from itself the hot rolled pickled and oiled is a very good material to use but it's more expensive because it had to go through a hot rolled process but structurally, it's 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 better and stronger um, than like a thin cold road type of material that, again, would not need to go through the pickling process, but yet has its own challenges because many times a cold road has a very strong propensity to want to, to rust or go back to its original state. The, it, it, they call it surface active, and the, the surface is very active, and it basically wants to rust real fast. A lot of times frustrating working with with hot rolled i mean a cold rolled sheets if all the other conditions aren't correct you can get more chance of a of flash rusting issues 
So as far as us pre-treating those three, or let's let's throw out the hot rolled for a minute because that's just got a lot of mail scale on it. But if we go hot rolled pickled and oiled versus cold rolled, we can pretty much do the same pre-treatment. But do we need to um, maybe pay a little closer attention to the cleaning portion on the pickled and oiled than the cold rolled? Absolutely, yes, because the the oil that they put on after the pickling process is usually very thick and very heavy and designed to keep the sheets from rusting. Um, whereas in the cold roll process, they'll have a light, you know, mill oil on it, but it's it's usually very, just very light and more easily removed. Okay. So again, same process, but but again, it makes a difference how much contact time or is the operator watching and being careful you know, to make sure that that is a clean, organically free, water break free surface kind of thing. Okay. So we've been talking about steel this whole time. Um, so a ferrous material. And I want to talk a little bit about aluminum. We powder coat a lot of aluminum. Um, I mean, aluminum is a pretty popular uh, metal to, to fabricate things out of. But sometimes I feel like somebody can totally understand the pretreatment process. Um, thinks that it's important for steel. And then when it comes to aluminum, since aluminum is non-ferrous and typically doesn't rust like steel would in terms of getting orange and rusty, um, then people think that like, well, pre-treatment just isn't as important on aluminum because it's not going to rust. So, you know, we can just, we have this really special pre-treatment process over here and, and do a good job on our steel. But when it comes to aluminum, you know, we just wipe it off with a rag and, and we go for it. Um, what are your thoughts on that initial statement about just like doing a quick and dirty pretreatment on aluminum, I guess? And then kind of, can you kind of go into um, what are the benefits of pretreating aluminum? Absolutely. Um, first of all, I think aluminum many times can be more sensitive and more important to pretreat properly even than steel. Okay. And um, just just real briefly, um, a lot of the times the different types of aluminums and there and there's several, but but a lot of times they can have a skin on them that no matter what you do, if you don't break that skin, it is very difficult to get good adhesion. Um, so with with that being said. What are we really doing? Oh, and then one other thing before we jump into that, um, it it is very interesting that you say, and it's very true that that most people out there, and I know you know differently, but but it's interesting that most people out there believe that aluminum does not rust. It does rust, but it goes into a white rust, so you don't see the red, you know, ferrous rust that you see with steel. But rust, or aluminum and galvanil and those types of products, those non-ferrous metals, they will rust, but they rust in what's called more of what's called a, a white rust. Absolutely. And uh, and we can talk about that, too, in a little bit. But but basically, if we talk about what do we need to do to properly pretreat aluminum, um, like I said, some cases it can be actually more tricky than than the, the ferrous, uh, ferrous substrates. But basically, it starts again in the first step, the cleaning. We have to organically clean the aluminum, first of all, and, and get all of the greases and the oils and the organics off of the part. 
Sometimes that can be done with a surfactant in an acid-type product. Sometimes you actually need to go with an alkaline product um, and then rinse and then bring it back to an acidic state before um, you do the powder coating or not. Um, but basically, we want to, first of all, get the organics and the oils off of the aluminum. Then secondly, we want to micro-etch or break the skin if there is any to micro-etch that substrate. Um, and now here is where it's a little bit different. Because we are a non-steel, non-ferrous product, we're aluminum, okay? We're not going to pull ferrous ions out of the steel because it's aluminum. And so therefore, even if you use an iron phosphate, you will not create an iron phosphate coating on aluminum. You can clean it. You can get it organically clean. You can micro-etch it with the acidity of the phosphoric acid or glycolic or whatever it may be as your acid source, and you can micro-etch it, but you're not going to create a phosphate coating on that aluminum. However, if you use a zirconium, as your conversion coat agent, then you can create a zirconium coating conversion coat on the aluminum. So that's why, like in your shop, Jace, you're running with, you know, whatever you need to do to clean the product prior to that step. And they're all given a little bit different depending on what your parts are. Um, but then you go into an etch process where you clean and etch the aluminum. And then you're going into a zirconium process. So you're creating a zirconium conversion coat um, so when you um, say, on the aluminum. When you say break the skin on of the aluminum, we usually don't talk about breaking the skin of steel. So what's the difference there? Um, and again, I, I'm using somewhat, you know, kind of slang from the industry after lots of years and stuff. So probably a, a, a lab person or a metallurgist could probably explain it a little bit better. But with the different types of alloys um, in aluminum, and then there's differences whether it's a, is it an anodized, is it a, a, you know, is it a casting, is it, you know, those types of things. But basically the aluminum can either through the process of manufacture or um, through other means, just through sitting out, can develop an oxide or a skin on the aluminum. And that is sometimes, many many times, more difficult to break open than just getting off, let's say, the greases and the oils to get good adhesion. You've got to actually break that barrier, that skin a little bit, open that up, micro-etch it, so that you can get adhesion on it. So would an analogy be like... We would never, t or we shouldn't, but in that case, or we wouldn't, but like if we had steel come in and it was rusty, we wouldn't even try to pre-treat that because we know we're not going to get the rust off. We'd blast it first. But in the case of aluminum, um, we're not seeing rust, the orange rust, and maybe it's not really white rusting yet either, but there's actually kind of an, in, like you just said, an invisible layer of skin on that that we don't even get to see Um but if like we saw that on steel, we'd be like, whoa, time out. We got to do something different. But since we don't see it on aluminum, that's what makes it tricky. Exactly, because it may be there and it may not be there. 
Okay. Um, a little bit ago, I talked about a, a client years ago that that ordered um, a big shipment from China, and it had fish oil on it, and nobody knew. Well, the fish oil over time turned almost like a shellac, and we had to use a whole different process, but you couldn't see it. So yeah. by the same token, like you just said, if you can't see the white rust or you can't see the skin, um, if it's a, you know some type of coating or if there's a skin on it, you may or may not need to break it. It may be just fine with a normal cleaning, whatever, but that's why you guys are using a, a special product on all aluminum to make sure that you break the skin. Um, and and then you can go into the proper, in this case, zirconium pretreatment and those types of things. If you don't break the skin, is it that you're just risking adhesion problem, or will you not even get any conversion coating to build? Um, both. Okay. Both, yeah, because you, you won't get any zirconium coating, most likely, and you probably won't get adhesion as well. Okay. And, and again, let me reiterate, I'm not saying on all aluminum. But but that is a, a as you'll talk with your customers and stuff probably a definitely a challenge out there when when dealing with aluminum. Okay, we had one question come up and I tried to answer it myself on our last podcast. And I think I did an okay job of it, but um, you can probably do better. Um, questions from O'Malley Custom Coatings um, it came through our Instagram, and he said. I can't get my phosphate mix right lately. It's driving me nuts. I thought it was six ounces to one gallon of water for a 20 to one mix, which is like 5% concentration, but I either get left with rusty metal or whitish film. What do you think, Bill? Oh. <laughs> I chuckle because, oh my God, if you knew how many hours and how many swear words I, I said and how many times that very same question. Um, over the years and and we're going to go back and let's start jump right back in the beginning and when your customer or your the person that was sending you that question said i can't get it mixed right lately that throws up a little bit of red flag with me because then i'm going to say okay well let's go back and let's see has anything changed first of all have you changed your chemistry have you changed your process did you change your steel did it work well before and now it's all of a sudden rusty um, and, and white, right, uh, you know, white ash and, and those types of things? Or has something changed? Did the chemicals freeze and that type of thing? If we say, okay, everything is exactly the same, chemistry is the same, the parts are basically the same, the process is the same, but it's, it's, um, it's still now acting up and I'm, I'm either getting you know, the white film, or I'm getting rusty, or I'm getting both. Then I say, okay, we need to look at number one, I think a 5% ratio, again, we don't know exactly how he's doing it, if it's a spray wand or a, a, a you know, a bucket and a rag or those types of things, but I think a 5% ratio is probably too strong, number one. And he is correct, six ounces, six to one gallon is about you know, five ounces and 20 to one is, of course, five ounces. I think that's a little strong. But my next question would be then, what is your pH? All right. So we've got two factors here. We talked before time, temperature, concentration for those three factors. Now we're going to bring in the fourth pH. Because when we're forming a conversion coating, 
Um, and it sounds like he's talking, oh, it is a phosphate. So there's a bell-shaped curve on a pH scale that the phosphate will form at the top of the curve, but form less phosphate towards each end as you go higher or lower on the pH. And as we talked before, the lower the phosphate coating, the more chance it's going to rust. If we get too much phosphate coating, it's going to be white and powdery. So the two things that he needs to look at so far is possibly is the 5% just simply too strong and he just needs to try a ratio at four or three. Um, then secondly, what is his pH range? Normally, I would say he should run on an average cleaner phosphate somewhere between, let's say, four and a half and five and a half on a pH, not a concentration, but a pH scale. Um, and then the last thing that I would check would be I would test my water. Um, and this is probably the last thing I say, and it's probably the most important thing I say. But all water sources have what's called different sources of alkalinity. Alkalinity. One of the main ones being an M-alkalinity. It's a buffering agent in the water. If his given water is missing or low on that element in the water, no matter what he does, he's going to keep eating away the phosphate that he's trying to build, and hence, most likely, his pH is going to be too low and too acidic. So that was a lot all at once. But if you think about, okay, number one, the concentration, let's try lower. Number two, what is our pH? And, and are we somewhere around 4.5 to 5.5, preferably 5.0 to 5.5, depending on the product? And then lastly, let's take a look at our water source and have that tested for our buffering agents. And then uh, if, in fact, you are missing any of those buffering agents in the, um, in the water source, if you're working with a good chemistry company, they most likely can adjust and buffer up, we call that, um, the product to compensate for that which the water is missing. And therefore, you can run at a normal concentration, be it 3% or 4% or 2%, whatever that may be, and still maintain the right pH without eating away or causing the white, the white film, unreacted phosphate left on top. Makes sense. That was a little bit different answer than I gave, but I, I like yours better. I, I, last week, I was thinking, because when I saw whitish film, I'm like, okay, too much concentration, just like he said. Um but also, but also the I guess I wasn't really taking into consideration too much concentration is also going to cause rusty metal, right? Because if we have too much concentration, we have a lot of acid, so that's creating the rust, is what you're exactly. saying. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And that'll drop your pH low, so you're eating away at the phosphate that you're trying to create. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because when I was when I saw rusty and whitish last week, I was like, hmm, either you're getting it way pre-treated way too well, spending way too much time getting white, or you're not spending enough time and you're getting it clean and then you're just not getting the conversion coating on it. Exactly. Yep. And and that is definitely one, one of the major portions that it could be because it could be kind of three different things.
All right. Well, I don't really have anything else. I think we'll end on that question. Um, thanks for taking the time and, and coming on, Bill. I always really like talking to you about pretreatment. Well, thank you, Jace. It's always a lot of fun, and we, we almost sometimes have too much fun. And, and I want to thank uh, O'Malley Custom Coatings for that great question because that is a great question, and I kid you not, before somebody finally taught me, I spent years fighting that. And, and uh, oh, man, it was a bear. I cleaned that up, by the way. And uh, um, it's, it's nice to uh, finally get some answers and direction after a lot of years. So uh, O'Malley Custom Coatings, thanks for bringing that on. And that was a great question. All right, that was Bill Townsend here on KaiserCast episode 14. Hopefully he cleared up some questions about pretreatment and conversion coatings. I think um, out of everything that we talked about, it's pretty hard to walk away from this and think that uh, pretreatment is not important, um, uh, even as we were going through it. And I've listened to Bill talk about these same topics. feels like hundreds of times. Every time I talk to him on the phone, I'm always... He's always repeating the same things um, and then adding just a little bit more, and it always just kind of re-solidifies everything in my mind. But even today, when we were talking about it, it kind of dawned on me that like when we're doing pretreatment and we're adding a conversion coating, we literally are using chemistry to bond the coatings together. We're, we're bonding the conversion coat uh, to the metal substrate, and then the powder is bonding to the actual conversion coating. So we have really good adhesion there. Whereas if we don't do any pretreatment, um, we're still greasy and oily, so we're definitely not going to stick. And then we also don't have the bonding happening because the conversion coating's not there. So um, extremely important. We really appreciate having Bill on. And uh, tune in next week for our next episode. Hey, is everything working good for you? You need anything? Anything broke? Anything leaking? Just make sure we stay on track with the yellows and everything will be fine. Little things lead to big things. When you stay late tonight, we need to get this job finished up. Overall, I think everybody's doing a great job. Keep up the good work. It's getting hot out, so make sure you're drinking plenty of water. I know this job's been difficult and everybody's getting frustrated, but if we can't do it, nobody else can. That's the reason why the job's here, because nobody else could get it figured out. Just keep working at it. Don't get frustrated. We'll keep collecting data, taking good notes, and we'll get it figured out. Does anybody else have anything?